I want to talk about stock price, which I'm sure is, is, is not your favorite topic. Is that the Better. biggest problem right now in your mind? I mean... DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins. Jason Robbins. Jason Robbins. Live on Radio Row. One of the biggest companies with the biggest growth potential probably in the world. There's a brand new spanking sportsbook. It's the DraftKings sportsbook. Why are you doing it this way? Things have changed over the last year even, right? Just how much money was being printed, what inflation was, some of these deals, what they were going for, right? We had crypto-specific companies paying ridiculous amounts for some of these marketing partnerships. Is there anything that you look back and, and you were like, damn, that was pretty obvious that things had gotten out of hand? The hard thing is predicting when, not if. What are your thoughts on launching in New York? Are you happy with how it's gone? Or are, you, are you not happy with it? Right now, it's the biggest state that has sports betting. And it can be profitable. The issue is going to be... That's probably one of the biggest complaints about the industry in general, right? It's just, it's so expensive to acquire customers. Just how do you think about expenses in general when it comes to customer acquisition? Everything's data first. Everything's math-driven. And there's two things that result from that. One is... The second effect of it, and this is something that What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Jason Robbins, the co-founder and CEO of DraftKings, a daily fantasy sports and sports betting company. Jason and I discussed the expansion of mobile sports betting, how DraftKings intends to steal market share from its rivals, the structure of their content partnership deals with companies like Meadowlark Media, the future of microbetting, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jason, and I hope that you will too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high-ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24-7, and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's G-O-L-D-I-N.com. Next up is the farmer's dog. Eating healthy has always been a priority for me. So when I was deciding what to feed my dog, Ranger, it was crucial to make that same investment for him. That's why we feed Ranger the farmer's dog. The farmer's dog offers vet-developed recipes with whole meat and veggies, gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve their nutritional value. The best part? Each meal arrives in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, and always delivers on schedule so you never run out. It's never been easier to invest in your dog's health with fresh food. So get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash Joe. Plus, you get free shipping. Just go to thefarmersdog.com slash Joe to get 50% off. That's thefarmersdog.com slash Joe. All right, let's get into this episode. All right, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank I'm you. excited. Uh, let's start with where DraftKings is um, this year, right? So 2022 just ended. Just talk me through a little bit about the last year. I know we did a podcast about a year ago. Um, so just kind of where you guys are today. Yeah, I think real big difference. First, you know, if you think about our, our lifetime as a public company, it's less than three years. Um, so last year was, you know, uh, almost, I don't know, about 40% of the entire. So um, still in that zone where uh, I think we're, you know, 
continuing to kind of learn what it means to be public. And um, this was the first bear cycle we've been through. Interestingly, I was thinking about this because I was watching with some of the other tech leaders and like obviously, you know, watching like what Mark Zuckerberg saying. And it occurred to me, I was like, well, they didn't go public until after, you know, well after the 08 crisis. This is actually his first bear cycle too. Yeah. It's been that long. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what you find uh, in a bear cycle is investors, maybe in, in, in most cases, even the very same ones want to hear something very different. Um, and so I think there is uh, throughout 2022 from like an IR standpoint. Um, and it was interesting because like there were things that we were doing that we weren't even talking about. I remember, um, you know, a few months ago, we were talking to one of our investors and he just asked the question. He's like, so in 23, are you changing your management incentive plans to be more profit focused? We said, well, we actually changed that going into 2022. He's like, really? Why, why haven't you told anybody about it? Um, we said, I don't know, we just didn't, didn't think of it, I guess. Like, it was just something we did because we thought we should do it. We didn't necessarily think it. Um, so as like, obvious as that seems now, there's like this adjustment of, um, you know, what are the things that investors are most interested in? And, um, you know, long-term ones are obviously all still interested in product and competition and all that. Um, but, you know, I think a big shift from revenue growth to cost and efficiency. Um, and interestingly, you know, and I think all these cycles happen happen for everything. It's funny how like everything is in harmony, um, even if like tactically some of the things people are telling you, the, the, the sort of overall approach of, you know, we had this huge run up and, you know, decade plus bull run, um, lots of, you know, capital being raised, particularly in the last few years going into, you know, 2022 um, and companies, not just us, everybody um, needed a, a good solid window of time to focus on efficiency to recalibrate from you know some of the things that have been occurring in previous and, um, and that's just natural part of the cycle. Um, so it coincided with just us saying this is something we need to be doing anyway. This is better for the long term health of the business. You're talking it's, about the profit stuff. Uh, yeah, focusing on cutting uh, expenses, uh, cutting expenses, being more efficient. It's really about being more efficient. Cutting expenses is. A, 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 uh, you know, it's an outcome that costs go down, but the, the kind of North Star is how do we, how do we become more efficient? And yes, of course, there's this, nobody's going to deny, um, this, this impetus from the market to do that. But you actually look at it, it's the right thing to do, is what I'm saying. Because if we're going to enter this next phase where we're profitable and, our margins are going to end up at a certain level and um, our ability to reinvest the business is going to be dependent on that, then having the most efficient operation matters more. Mm -hmm. In a time when capital is cheap, it's not as important. It's not to say it's not important, but it's not as important. At mm -hmm. a time when you're going to be, A, in a higher interest environment, your hurdle rate's higher, and B, that capital that you're going to invest is, need, is going to need to come from the profits, from the cash flow you're generating it becomes much more important than ever that you have the most efficient operation it actually becomes a competitive advantage. You can do more things to reinvest in your customers and in your platform. Um, so I've really been preaching to the company like that's, yes, maybe I'm not going to sit here and like pretend to you that I'm, you know, in no way uh, does this have anything to do with the point in the cycle we're at. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the point. Those things happen in harmony for a reason. There's a, there's a you know, an elegance to all the madness. Um, nature almost governs it in a weird way. Um, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. We need to be doing this right now. And it's actually not just so you, you know, very clear. It's not just 
because we want to cut costs or make more profits. It's because actually being more efficient gives you a competitive advantage. And if you're not a competitive disadvantage in this next phase of our growth and evolution. Um, and in doing that, I also stressed what that also means is you can't let your, your foot off the gas on growth. Um, none of this matters. You could cut 100 million in costs, but if we don't get 100 million, we would have gotten a, a bottom line because the revenue goes soft, then we're we're break even. We didn't actually yeah. accomplish anything. So you have to keep your foot on the gas on growth too. Well, I, I think that's that's probably one of the biggest complaints about the industry in general, right? It's just it's so expensive to acquire customers. To um, when a state goes live, you guys rush in and as do other operators and try to acquire as many as possible. That's super expensive. Obviously, the partnerships are expensive and so forth. Has that has that view of yours changed over the years? Like now that the business is more mature, you guys are live in more markets. Does this become a national play? Does it say, you say, look, we don't need to spend nearly as much now as we used to. Um, the profitability, you know, the, the months it takes the profitability for a customer is shorter than it used to. Just how do you think about uh, expenses in general when it comes to customer acquisition? Well, you, the national point you mentioned, which is something we've been talking about for a few years now and it feels like it was this cool story and now now it's actually finally happening yeah. where we've reached a point where there's enough national scale there's enough states with legal Yeah population. and to be clear that what we mean by that right advertising. is that advertising but there, there's enough states where online sports betting is legal to where it makes sense to advertise nationally versus just in that one location Exactly okay. So well it's, it's here's how I would describe it um there is a certain level of advertising that, you know, even in a steady state, we will do. If mm -hmm. you look at our long-term forecast, we're not saying we're going to spend zero on marketing. There's pretty heavy. And it's because there's always new people coming in market. There's always, you know, there's always a reason to be advertising. In the past, that was indistinguishable from a short-term, hey, we're going to spend locally, which we know is inefficient. We know is in a more expensive per impression ad. Um, because there wasn't enough, there weren't enough states to make any national advertising make sense. Now, as we've gotten more and more, and you know, we everything's data for us, everything's math driven. And we're mm -hmm. like, okay, it makes sense to run this national ad, even though it's not reaching fifty plus percent or whatever it is of the population that's eligible. We have enough now that it makes sense versus running this local ad. We can do that. Um, and there's two things that result from that. One is it becomes this. Um, you know, very it very much changes uh, the the way you launch a state. There is still a local burst in the beginning, mm -hmm. but you much more quickly get to that point where whatever you would have been spending locally in the state, you're already getting enough coverage nationally that you can turn off a lot of the local stuff. So, yeah. um, well, you people know, have seen your brand for years. Yeah, people right? have and, seen your brand yeah. for years. Exactly. So. Yeah. It's it, the 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 uh, window of time when you need to invest in a state launch. It's still there, but it's much more compact. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see that in the way these new states are ramping because of the brand awareness, because of the national advertising, because of, you know, the momentum of the industry. Um, we're acquiring the same number of people that we acquired in like the first year or year and a half in some of the early states in a matter of like two or three months now yeah. in some of these new states on a per capita basis. So that's effect number one is that a lot of that national is just having this logo. You don't need it anymore. The second effect of it, and this is something that we will be an ongoing tailwind, is everything I just described should keep getting better and better naturally as more states come on. Mm -hmm. The reason being everything you're describing, there's that much more of. So for the next states, they've seen four years now, not three years of DraftKings ads. Also, 
I don't need to buy another ad to reach that same person. I was already reaching them. The only difference is they can now actually play the product. The state's live. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it makes the existing advertising you have perform better because all of a sudden now that same ad didn't cost anymore, but it's reaching a larger portion of eligible population. So the return you're going to get on it will be better. I, I think I read somewhere <clears throat> that um, – and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that you were going to slow down, DraftKings was going to slow down with the individual team partnerships or league partnerships and focus more on a different sector of advertising. Is that correct? So what we said is that we're looking at all that stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, this is it's another, I mean, you could argue it's always good health, but there are times where you really can focus your company on I'm, I'm just things. trying to think through like and, what the most efficient stuff is. Well, right, that's something guys. that we're looking at because yeah. we think there's a lot of inefficiency in there. So, um, you know, there's some great deals and great partners. There's also some deals that they would work. They just need to be right sized. Mm -hmm. And there's some others that just really aren't working. And, um, you know, I think that's always something we look at, but um there, there's a different level of scrutiny now. And also, you know, the market's changed. Um, the the pricing of media has gone down. So mm -hmm. naturally, you know, other marketing sorts of deals are following suit. Now, um, there's another element that's important here too, which is, um, and this comes back to kind of the previous point I was making around new state launches. Those, those are effectively local advertising, right? So as we're getting more national advertising and as those new state launch periods where we're heaving up in local are becoming more compact, it's not to say that they didn't work before they were never good. Mm -hmm. It's just that's changed. It's changed. Now yeah. we have all this national media that we're running that's hitting that same audience maybe you don't need it as much. In other words, when 100% of your marketing budget is local, then there's a portfolio of things you buy. When 20% or 30% of the marketing budget for a period of time is local, then you're going to narrow it to the 20, 30 most impactful things. And so naturally, things that were on the list before now aren't and or, or need to be changed in terms of you know the value that you're getting for, for what you're paying for it. Gotcha. When I think about, uh, you said something in there that was that things have changed over the last year even, right? Just marketing rates and everything else has changed. Is there anything that you look back and, and you were like, damn, that was pretty obvious that things had gotten out of hand, right? Like I just think about it from how much money was being printed, what inflation was, some of these deals, what they were going for, right? We had, uh, there was crypto specific companies paying, as you know, ridiculous amounts for some of these marketing partnerships and stuff like that. Is there anything you look back on and you're like, that was a sign that I should have should have seen a lot of this coming or did you see it coming even? Oh, I think we, everything cycles. So yeah. um, I'm not, the hard thing is predicting when, not if. Yeah. Um, I definitely saw this coming. I couldn't have told you exactly what was going to happen when. I don't mm -hmm. know that anybody can. Um, Just money was out of control at the time. and there It was very clear to me. I mean, you know, we said this even when we went public. We said, there's been almost a 10 year bull market at this point. At some point, that's not like there's never been an forever, infinite yeah. bull market. Yeah. Um, there's always a bear market at some point. There's always a period of correction. Do I know when that's going to be? Do I know how severe it's going to be? Do I know what sectors it's going to hit the most or what? No, but I know it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think being, I, I always feel like that was something on our mind. And, um, at the same time, you know, I've also been asked, like, would you do anything differently? And obviously, you'd always hindsight do some things differently. But from like an overall approach standpoint, um, no, because I think that, you know, you have to sort of operate within 
the environment you're in. Um, we started talking a lot here about windows. You have windows of time. So, mm -hmm. for example, 2020 and 2021, there was a window where fundraising was very important. Mm -hmm. I raised money four times in an 11 month span. Um, now there's because a window. you could. It, it well, and it was not going to be there forever. Yeah, right. That's what so I mean, yeah. that yeah, the window closes at mm -hmm. some point. So you got to take advantage when the window's open. Um, now we're in a window where we have an opportunity because there isn't as much out of control comp competitive spending. Investors are demanding more efficiency and profit. So everybody's focusing on it. We have a window where we can really focus there and we can do that also while continuing to be competitive. Mm -hmm. Um, because everybody's pulling back to some extent. And if we can be smarter about where we pull back and really surgical about it, then we can actually continue to grow top line outsized versus the market. And we can do a better job cutting costs and becoming more efficient without sacrificing either of those things. And there's all sorts of ways to look at windows. You can look at windows of business opportunities strategically. Like, you know, I've talked to my team about like Netflix. So Netflix had a window where, you know, Blockbuster didn't figure out that the world was moving to e-commerce and people wanted to order stuff on the internet and have it delivered to their house and not go get it. Mm -hmm. Then they had a window where media companies didn't really understand the value of streaming and were selling a lot of their content, renting it, I should say, for dirt cheap. Yep. Um, I think they're paying like five million bucks a year or something for stars. And then the next time that came up was like 300 million. So they had to figure out in that window they had a window. How do we start to develop our own content so we're not so reliable on third party rely, uh, reliant on third party content? Um, so there's all these ways you do. And companies that take advantage of the windows and really maximize the most important thing. And there's usually like lots of things you're working on, but there's a most important thing in that window. Those are the ones that can continue to. You know, through every in these points in the cycle, they actually get better because they're doing something that they couldn't do earlier. Um, and then if you don't, then, you know, you could end up non-existent or at least stagnant. So it's really important, we talk about, to take advantage of whatever the most important thing is in that window of time because eventually the window closes. And it's really hard to predict when. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you just got to know when you're in it, what you should be doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk about stock price, which I'm sure is, is, is not your favorite topic, but um, mm. it's obviously, look, DraftKings is a sports betting company, right? So there's a lot of retail investors, people that use the product that buy the stock. And you probably know more than anyone that they're happy when things are going well and not happy when things are not going well. I don't necessarily want to talk about the decline or the the advance in the stock price and, and what the actual value is. I'm sure you would argue that it should be higher at times, and I'm sure other people would argue that it should be lower. But what I do want to talk about is um, how you deal with the stock price, right? Because I think one of the most interesting things about being a public company, which I'm sure you've you've come to realize for sure, is it swings and, and you're incentivized on quarterly earnings when in reality, you're trying to build a business for the next 50 to 100 years, right? How do you think about that? Is it something that you are you don't worry about and you just think long-term? Is it something that you have to answer to every quarter and, and you're, you're constantly thinking about it? Just talk me through kind of that process. Yeah, so, I mean- you always intuitively have a sense of how the market's doing, um, whether your company is doing well or not. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're private, you don't get a daily measuring stick for that. You yeah. don't get a score every day. Um, so it, it's it's different. And it, it certainly was an adjustment to get used to not just me. And um, I think, you know, for me, obviously, I don't like seeing my stock go down and I like seeing it go up. But it was it was never like really that impactful. Um, the thing that I think is harder is everyone else. Mm 
mm-hmm. whether that be employees, retail investors, and um, you know, for them, it really does matter. Maybe in some cases because they're trading the stock. Um, maybe in some cases just because um, they don't necessarily have the information that you do to have the confidence in the plan that you're executing. And, and so naturally, when they see stock going down and concerns in the market, they get concerned. Well, and it's probably um, like more as a scoreboard for you, right? Like yeah. you're you're incentivized to build a business because that's what you want to do. You're you're in it. You're in it for the long run. You're financially incentivized, obviously, but uh, it's probably not as as you know, you're not worried about it every single day like that, like some other people might be. I don't, Yeah, you're right. I'm not worried about it every day. I'm mm-hmm. worried about it over time. But I, I think that because other people are, including employees, like yeah. I said, you have to be, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to be cognizant that, um, you know, inve- it is important to, I think, more than anything, have credibility and have confidence from the market. And sometimes there's things that you can do that can change that. Sometimes you're in a point in the cycle where it's really hard to change that. And Mm -hmm. that's the most frustrating part of it. And you have to go through this period where you're looking at your stock price every day. And it feels like an eternity, even though it's been one quarter or two quarters. Maybe even know you have some great announcement. You're just holding back and you're still getting beat up in the market. And those things are hard. And it feels like days or months. and then at the same time, it's very gratifying when you have a good print and you have a good um, – but it is important to always remind that's not really the most important thing. Um, but where I think it is important is when, when I looked at, uh, you know, for example, um, the last two earnings calls that we had. And I thought we had a relatively good actual story mm-hmm. in both cases. And – Part of it was the market, but part of it was we didn't do a good job telling that story in in the November call, and we did a much better job telling that story in the February call. Um, and this, the, the actual data, the, the the content we had to work with was slightly better, but it wasn't that much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to get one where it was like a minus twenty something percent day, and the other one was plus fifteen percent, um, you know, that was to me less about. Uh, Oh, I'm so hung up on how the stock price is doing, and more for me. How am I assessing our IR? Um, are we actually executing well there? And mm-hmm. I think we executed much better on the IR side in February than we did in November. A lot of it is we're still new to this and we're learning. Um, first bear market, all those things. But I felt so much more confident going into the Feb call. And when I looked at it and asked why, I'm like, yeah, the results are a little better than the previous call. Like the guide's going to be better. Um, but that's not really why it was because I felt like I really understood what we, you know, what points to emphasize and how to tell the story, um, including they had that call I mentioned on the management incentives before. And that was like a light bulb for me, even though it's one thing, it's like, I'm not thinking about this the right way. I'm still talking about the same stuff I was talking about two years ago. We're actually doing all these other things I'm not talking as much about, um, I got to rethink that. And I think that was like a big epiphany. And um, credit to our IRIR team, they, they did a great job, um, you know, pivoting and figuring out what the right change in tone and message was. And uh, I felt much better about it. But that's to me, the more important thing is like, how, how are we doing managing the sentiment of investors, understanding some of that's completely out of your control? How are we doing managing our message in the market? Um, and it's less stock price and more like, what are our big shareholders doing? Are they buying? Are they selling? And those sorts of things that I look at. Yeah. I want to talk about content 
um, and specifically in the in the context of customer acquisition, right? Um, I think over the last few years, we've seen a number of of big deals go through on the space of sports betting operators using content to drive a lot of this home. Um, you guys did the deal with Metal Arc. You've done a few other deals outside of that. Uh, competitors have done big deals as well, and, and uh, recently Penn just did the bar, closed the bar, barstool deal also. Um, <clears throat> Where do you think you are in that kind of landscape? Like, are you happy with where you're at? Is there more to come just in the context of yourselves, but also competitors? Um, I think we're very much at the very early stage uh, of this. Um, I, You know, our background is in gaming. Um, we've been doing some form, whether it's fantasy sports or, you know, now sports betting, iGaming, of mm-hmm. building games for people for years. Um, and now – you know, we're trying to do something a little different on the content side. We brought in some great people. Um, but between the infrastructure we built up and then also just know-how, um, I think we're still really early stage. And um, at the same time, I think there's such this, you know, the relationship between the content side and the game or the betting, it's it's real. Um we know that it's real. We know there's this flywheel effect there. So As in you're talking about the content funneling them into customers and the reverse too. gotcha customer it's the whole flywheel right yeah. it's the content funnels them in but then they they grow appetite for the content when they um that's the the beauty of uh you know sports betting and fantasy sports is it turns you know a fan of one team into a fan of many teams and um so it, it's really this this sort of flywheel right mm-hmm. um so we know that exists we know it's real We know that a huge expense for us every year is marketing and that what we're doing is effectively renting space on other people's content to advertise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think we feel very good about the strategy, um, but we're still early in executing it. The Meadowlark deal has been fantastic for us. Great partners. Um, I think not just because Dan and his show and all that, um, obviously very popular, but also, you know, John Skipper and Dan and the whole group are just good partners. They've Mm -hmm. been helpful to us in understanding how we can do this better. Um, And I think the things that we've learned from that have given us confidence that we can do more similar types of deals and get good ROI out of it. Um, So I think we have a pretty good place. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to ask about, you you mentioned... um, that deal specifically, right? But also the idea of renting a lot of this space. Penn did something different where they they bought it, right, to some degree. There's already rumors that, you know, they may end up doing something else with the deal and licensing content back or, or relationships back and whatever. But how do you think about that idea of renting it versus creating things yourself and owning the platforms or buying businesses or content people or, you know, hiring them in-house versus just, you know, licensing things out or, or getting the IP from other people? Um does it make so a huge difference? It, well, over the long term, owning as much of it as possible is advantageous, mm-hmm. um, assuming you can make the economics work. I think um, always and will be the case, it'll be a mix of both. Yeah. Uh, it's just there's, there's, there's probably no world in which we would have um, you know, no need to advertise in, in, in any Externally. external place. But the more that as a percentage, it can be owned content um, or content at least we own the rights to for some period of time, the better the economics are. But the way we look at it, it's pretty simple. We look at it and we say, and this is exactly how we looked at it when we did the deal with Metal Lark on Dan Levitard. Mm-hmm. We say, okay, we have a good relationship with Dan and the show. We would probably do a sponsorship. We'd rent it. What will we pay for that? Then we say, okay, if they were just to 
give us the rights. And instead of just looking at it as here's the value of the sponsorship, we also could sell ads and monetize it in other ways. What would that look like? And if it checks out to where that's actually just a more profitable deal, that's an accretive yeah. deal, even if it in itself isn't right, if it more than covers um, the cost of the sponsorship, then you just basically got you know something, some sort of competitive edge there. Mm-hmm. So that's how we look at all these. So what we're starting to do now that we've been able to prove some of this stuff out with them is we're looking at other similar types of, of situations and we're having that same conversation and saying, listen, we can buy a sponsorship and here's what we'd be willing to pay for it. Um, that's very data-driven. There's so many customers who think would acquire all that. Or we also have talked to our ad sales team, and they think they can do a good job You know, taking your content and generating ad revenue off of it. Would you like to do a deal like that? And if so, here's what we could do. Gotcha. Um, and so that's like been the very short-term thing. The other big focus, which I think we still have a lot of work to do on, is distribution. Um, I think we actually have um, more good content than we've maybe people know, and we it's because we haven't done a good job um, distributing it even through our own channels. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something else that we're focused on too. One of the things we found is that, um, you know, customers only want to hear about this latest promotion so many times, even though customers love promotions, it you know, it can't be the only thing you talk about. Mm-hmm. So having great content gives us ways to engage customers, whether that's trending bets or Dan Lebetard's picks for the day or whatever it might be. Um, it gives us great ways to engage the customer that doesn't just rely on throwing another promotion at them. Gotcha. Um, switching topics here. In hindsight, uh, what are your thoughts on on launching in New York? And um, obviously, it's a unique situation given the the tax implications and whatnot. Are you happy with how it's gone? Are you, are you not happy with it? Just talk me through that. Um, you know, I think New York. It's a big state right now. It's the biggest state that has sports betting. Um, so, and it can be profitable. Mm-hmm. So I think launching it, we have to, we had to, and it's the right thing to do. I think the issue is going to be what are the measures that need to take place in order, what are the steps that need to take place that all the operators are going to have to, you know, some combination of take uh, to make New York profitable, and what does that mean for the consumer value proposition that's going to be there? Um, and you know, I think eventually that'll sort out wherever it will, and either it'll be acceptable enough that the state will leave things as status quo, or it won't be, and they'll change things. But um, I think either way, it's it, this is unfortunately part of you know when when you're a regulated business and. Um, not every state is going to necessarily do it in a way that, that you think makes sense. Um, you have to kind of adapt. And the nice thing is we do have this state-by-state technology set up where we can change things state level. So mm-hmm. um, we're going to have to you know, wait and see. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens this legislative session if they do change some of the tax rules. That that obviously would change some of what we feel we, we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but – you know, either way, I think it's the right thing because it's a big market and we're, we're going to be able to make a lot of money there. It's just, I think, um, unfortunately, there's this period of time where um, based on not just where the, if, I think if the tax rate was set there and like from day one, they were like, this is what we're doing. We're never going to change it. 
different. It was because of the way it evolved, where like the legislature, uh, the legislature, I think originally had like a fifteen percent tax, and then yeah, it's better to have clear rules, right? Yeah. Even if they're not in your favor, it's or, or it's like just clear. clear that like it's not. I mean, these rules were clear. It's just more the way we got there, and now the fact that they're even you know there's a bill in place to change it. Um, it's not clear this is the the final resting spot. So in a big market like that, it, the Congress we're having internally is like. Do we want to pull back yet? You know, what if they lower the tax rate? What if they change it so we could deduct promo? What yeah. if they introduce iGaming, some things that could fundamentally change the market and the economics in the market? And then we're going to kick ourselves because during the most important first year, year and a half, we, you know, we're, we're, we're holding back because of this. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll know a lot after this legislative session. And at that point, based on what they do or don't do, We'll be able to figure out if we, you know, have to make any drastic changes to the way the product is is brought to market there. What about California? California yeah. was obviously um, was that last year? Yeah, was, yeah, last was year. No, twenty twenty four. I think is the next one. Learnings from that. What might happen next? Just general thoughts. Well, I mean, obviously, very disappointing. California mm-hmm. is a huge market. Um, you know, I think it's about twelve percent of the population. Um, I also think you know it's. Hard to imagine as this keeps going that California is going to be the only state or one of the only yeah. handful of states that doesn't have online sports betting or has it but doesn't have any of the major brands. So to me, it almost feels like like hard to imagine that that could exist. So um, with no other justification than that, I have faith that as time goes on, um, there will be a path. But uh, I'd say as of now um, – you know, there's really just too much tribal opposition to imagine us getting anything done. I think some of the tribes, particularly the one that's been most in opposition, does want online gaming. And, um, you know, I think there's potentially a compromise to be done there, but uh, we haven't, you know, necessarily found it yet. So um, that's my hope. But uh, I think it's going to take a little time to play out. I don't see, you know, this being like a short-term thing. It's the biggest prize. And so not surprisingly, it's going to be the hardest battle. Um, well, Florida and Texas too, right, I, I think, yeah. are, are the other ones that people are thinking a lot about and, and trying to figure out the path forward there. Um, but I don't think there really is a clear answer right now. Yeah, I mean, if you had told me California or Texas, which one do you think is going to legalize sports betting first four years, five years ago? I mean, what would you have said, right? Yeah. And now it looks like it might be Texas. It's yeah. kind of crazy. Um, so, you know, Texas is much more straightforward. Uh, you know, definitely, like, still no slam dunk. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, you know, there, there's a lot to work through to get something done there. Um, but there's not this massive, you know, deep-pocketed opposition that's willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars defeating a ballot campaign. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think it's, there's never been anything like that in California. Nobody ever spent that kind of opposition dollars. I didn't think anyone ever – anyone really realized. But I think the lesson learned is if anyone wants to drop that kind of spend, it doesn't matter what the issue is. You can defeat any ballot initiative pretty mm-hmm. much, at least for a period of time. Eventually, I think consumers get educated enough. But certainly the first time it's on the ballot and it's being contemplated and people are forming opinions, if someone wants to drop 220, 230, whatever it is, million dollars in a single state of ad spend – um, they can certainly poison the well enough to kill it. So yeah, it becomes harder though year after year to do. I would think so because I would think one, the the voter gets more educated. Um, it's not just this barrage of ads, but they've had more time for friends and others to educate them on the topic. Two, I think more and more states start. You know, everybody's like, wait a minute, we're the only ones doing not doing this anymore. Yeah. It starts to become more that way. Um, 
A lot of this stuff has changed too, right? Like, I mean, you know this better than anyone. A decade ago, it was taboo to say I was betting on a game or doing something, right? If you talked about it at work, people would be like, shh, don't talk about that, right? And now it's like, yeah, I'm on, you know, DraftKings at work, (laughs) right? Like things have changed and it becomes more normal every year that this goes on. That's exactly right. And um, that's the better way of putting it is it just over time – it, it feels more like you're the outlier voting no than than voting yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I also think the fact is if someone wants to spend that much in opposition, it makes it tough. So um, I think until we figure out a way to, to work that out, um, I don't think it's like a 2024 thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm talking longer term when I think eventually it doesn't matter what someone wants to spend. It's just self-evident that this is something California should be doing. Mm-hmm. But that's that's not in the next year or two, I think. I think we're, there, there either has got to be a, a deal worked out or we're just going to be in a stalemate there for at least another cycle or two. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk a little bit about DraftKings specifically and, and the business and, and where it might look in the future, right? Um one of the questions I received on Twitter was uh, about your guys' hold percentage and kind of what that might look like in the future. I think it was a little under 8% last year. Um, how does that change as the market becomes more mature, as the business becomes more mature? Does that go higher, lower? And and off of that, what do you think is sustainable? Like what is ideal for you guys as a business? You know, I've evolved my thinking a lot on this. And I, I have to say, you know, it's really because of what Flutter's doing. Flutter's I think it was around 10% last year. They're saying they want to take it to 12. Hmm. Um, and they have great retention metrics from what I can tell. They have great market share. So um, I think that they've shown at least 10 is sustainable. Um, and if they're going to take it to 12, we'll, we'll find out. Um, hopefully we'll catch up to them before they get there. Um, so maybe we'll find out first. But uh, I think, you know, clearly, uh, which by the way, in some ways, people would say, well, your competitor's got a higher hold than you. Um, you know, that's pro- we look at that as that's, that's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. If we know, we don't even have to have the debate internally. What happens if we take hold percentage up to 9%, 10%? We know. Mm-hmm. We see, like, everything's see exactly, fine. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and um, how you get there matters. I think just making the odds worse is not the answer. you got to have competitive odds. So. It's really about developing products like these parlays that people like. And I think that's the beauty of this is that, you know, in the past, probably, and I say that I've evolved my thinking, I was thinking of it much more as like, okay, like you just make the odds worse. If you're playing, you know, poker, you make the rake higher. Like, you know, it's not new products, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the way I've now come to think about it is um, how do you – in in this case, parlays are a great example. How do you develop a product that people want that works at a higher margin and is still a really strong consumer experience that people are going to, you know, retain well and, mm-hmm. and be attracted to? Um, and I think there's a lot of a lot of room there. Um, we're still below where they are in terms of parlay mix. So um, I, I I look at it as a very exciting opportunity if we can, you know, achieve. Uh, another two, three hundred bips increase in hold rate and have little to no effect on retention. I mean, it's that a is a massive. Yeah. Uh, it makes the 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 uh, investment case. It makes the long term prospects for the business. Um, it's a step function change. And what's interesting about that is it's not just a step function change in revenue. When you increase hold, 
Um, and same thing when you decrease promotion dollars, because so much of our cost of revenue is not based on revenue, mm-hmm. um, even though it's you know accounted for there. Um, you know, uh, the times that we have to ping GeoComply or Amazon Web Services are based on volume of transactions, right? So, you know, same thing, the excise tax that we pay at the federal level is based on handle, um, not on how much we're making off of that yeah. handle. So it changes so, a lot of stuff. Oh, it, yeah. it flows through an incredibly high margin. So it's, it's not just the same as saying, okay, I'm going to keep DraftKings gross margins the same and raise their revenue. That incremental revenue is actually going to raise our margins too, mm-hmm. um, meaning our, our gross profit margins. Yeah. So um, it's a really exciting opportunity. I, I talked to um, my team about this as well. I've been at companies where you had like, you know, you sat in December, or November, whenever you're doing like the final, and you're like, geez, I, I don't, this plan, I don't think maybe we can eke out 10% growth. Like, who's got the next idea? We got to figure out something. Yeah. This isn't that. We have all sorts of obvious opportunities, really just execution. Mm-hmm. We just have to execute well, but we know what we need to do. I think um, that's been a big change too over the past year. Like, going into 2022, I feel like there was still, you know, how are we going to win? How are we, and, I think now we feel like we know exactly what we need to do. We just need to execute. Gotcha. Uh, what about micro betting as, as kind of <clears throat> off of that, right? We've seen some businesses pop up where that's the sole focus really. Um, and, and we know that it's going to become or should become a larger part of this. Where does that look long-term? Is that a big part of your business, a smaller part? Just how do you think about that? I think it's, you know, a lot of it will depend on on um, the real-time uh, aspect of the data. Mm-hmm. Um, the more, you know, the data can be truly real time, um, the higher you can get uptime on those markets and therefore the more bettable they'll be. Is that the but biggest I, problem right now in your mind? Like, cause think, the tech seems to be getting closer there, right? In a lot of areas. I think so. I don't know that it's like a huge problem cause it's, it's like gotten better. Yeah. And I think that it's still serviceable now, but to really reach like something where it's just, you know, I think it's maximum potential. There is some some you know opportunity to to make the data faster and make it you know ultra reliable too. That's the other thing is sometimes the faster you collect data, it becomes you know a little less reliable because um, it's either being manually collected or for some other reason. So um, I think that. But all that said, I think it's I, even in today's world with the way that we're you know able to do things right now. Um, I think there's a lot of upside opportunity there. I think that more and more people are adopting it each and every uh, season, and I expect it to continue to grow even if there's no product or data um, changes. But I think if we see some upgrades in the plumbing, um, it could just really inflect even more. Nice. Um, What about iGaming? Like what, what, I don't know if we want to talk in like percentages of the business, but like how do you divide the business up as it gets more mature? Like, how do you think about different buckets and what percentage of revenue and, and you guys should be thinking of? You know, uh, I think it depends on how many states, what it will look like at the yeah. overall business There's a lot level. of variables into that question. Well, that's the big one for the overall business. But at an individual state level, we know iGaming is at least two to three times the market potential of sports mm-hmm. betting, which is already still a big market size with sports betting. So um, you know, it can really increase the the TAM in a market if we can get iGaming in addition to sports betting. Um, I think as much momentum as there's been on sports betting legislation, and it's been at least as good, if not better, than my expectations in terms of where I thought we'd be right now. Um, 
I think iGaming is a little behind. Now, some of that I was expected because I think we always felt like sports betting was going to be the big thing that got, you know, nationwide pushed first. And then iGaming would be here and there until, you know, maybe there's some momentum there, too. Um, But I also think there's some education work to be done. For example, one of the things that's been very compelling on sports betting is um, this notion that there's this big illegal market and there's no consumer protections, no tax revenue being generated. Why don't we just bring that in-house? Um, that exists in iGaming too, but nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, most offshore sports books that have, um, you know, digital offerings, which is all of them now, have a casino tab on their on their website. Um, but nobody talks about it. It's inherently probably not as social. So, and maybe it's a taboo thing you were talking about earlier, but people just aren't talking about it as much. So I think there's some education there. And then the other thing I think that'll be a factor is um, – you know, the, all the federal money that still got pump, that got pumped into states, um, you know, coming out of COVID, uh, they're still working through that. So I don't think that there's as big, you know, at least from a, most states, there's as big a, a budget a concern man, yeah. at this point. Yeah. And I think that'll change in the next year or two. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, all right. Two more questions. Uh, one, continuing on the theme of the business and kind of what things look like, we've seen a bunch of, or I don't know about a bunch, but a few different competitors, we'll call it, pop up. And um, a lot of their main advantage has been player props on DFS, right? Um, underdog prize picks, et cetera. How do you guys counter that? Think about that. Is that something you're thinking about actively? Just like talk me through that too. Um, I mean, I think, you know, First, I'd say, and I'm not going to get into naming any specific competitors uh, or any specific, you know, operators, but um, some of those products are literally the same thing we're offering. It's Mm -hmm. just we're offering them as sports betting and regulated as sports betting, and um, they're choosing to call them fantasy. Um, I think those products over time – I mean, same thing, like regulators right now are making so much new tax revenue, but as they start to see that that's flattening out or maybe there's more opportunity, I think that they're going to get more aggressive with some of these. Mm -hmm. So I think those products either they they need to figure out how to get them registered as sports betting, which is hard. It's hard to make that transition or they're just going to, you know, I think cause real issues for those companies. Um, and then there's other products that I think are clearly fantasy, like best ball that uh, we've had a renewed focus on and we need to do a better job of. So um, that's a product we've had for a couple of years now, I think at least two, maybe longer. And um, there's no reason we shouldn't be the leader on that. So I think that's one that we definitely are focused on. And then, you know, some of the other things I think we'll have to see um, what ultimately regulators view them as. But um, we don't really care. I mean, anybody can offer anything they want. We're happy to compete with anyone. We just want to make sure that we're getting taxed and regulated on the same products in the same way that others are. And so, you know, I think yeah, that's our main field. focus there. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Last question. There was a rumor or news about uh, DraftKings ESPN deal a while ago. Is there any update on that? Is there anything happening there? Oh, well, we have a current deal. With no, ESPN, yeah, I know, but, but I think there was supposed to be. Yeah, I know. Everybody's always, I mean, we talk to partners all the time and ESPN's certainly been a great partner of ours, but we talk to partners all the time about ways we can either expand the deal or in some cases, um, you know, if we have to right size it. Um, but trust me, I see DraftKings all over ESPN. Yeah. Now, so I know you're there. I just, uh, I know that there, there was rumors of a bigger deal. Um, 
Yeah, there's always rumors, but you know, I think in our we can't really comment any specific discussions with any particular partner because we have them all the time. And um, if there's anything that we had to announce, we would announce it. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for your time. Thank you. Great to see you. Of